welcome back our fellow patriots to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We have finished our deep dive into the text of the Declaration of Independence and are now exploring the 56 men who signed the document. This is part two of the signers, and like part one, we will hear from the signers themselves. Our narratives are in the first person, and each signer will speak to us, not in 1776, but after they have ascended to the pearly gates. Naturally, their comments will be infused with their personalities. At best, most people can only name a few of the brave men who signed the Declaration, with maybe a couple of highlights of their lives. Even fewer have any idea about the many sacrifices the signers made to win independence and forge a new, free republic. We are rectifying this lack of historical knowledge. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. Last episode, we covered the first 14 signers, at least as they appear on the engrossed version of the Declaration of Independence, which was presented for execution on August 2nd, 1776. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up. And one word of caution for all the episodes involving these mini-biographies of the signers. The sources often disagree on many of even the most basic facts about the signers, such as places, dates, and similar matters. Where there seems to be a prevailing view, or where there is a disagreement, but I possess a seriously grounded educated opinion, I simply relate the prevailing view or my educated opinion. If there is a material quandary and I don't have a solid conclusion, the particular spirit may remark that you will have to wait until you meet him in the great beyond. Now let's get with it. I am most pleased and humbled to introduce Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Thank you so much, my dear Judge Warren. I am Charles Carroll of Carrollton. And that's Carroll with two R's and two L's, in case you're concerned with proper spelling. And Carrollton has the same spelling with, of course, the added T-O-N at the end. Now, my grandfather was also Charles Carroll, as was my father and my cousin. And I understand that Judge Warren is Michael Warren, as is his father and his cousin. Well, I solved my dilemma by adding of Carrollton at the end of my name. Perhaps your Michael Warren should do the same. Actually, I'm Michael David Warren Jr., and my father is Michael David Warren, and my cousin, Michael Dennis Warren, and my other cousin, Nicholas Michael Warren, and then my other cousin, Michelle Denise. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you very much, Judge Warren. And I do think that judge is just fine. Now, returning to me, I was born on September 19, 1737, at Carroll Mansion in Annapolis, Maryland. My family was descended from Irish stock, and I am proud to relay that we were originally named O'Carroll, and our lineage is traced back to Irish kings. Now, for those of our guests who don't know this, Maryland was founded by Catholics as a haven in the New World. It was planned out by George Calvert, the first Lord of Baltimore, and the colony was settled by his son, Cecilius. With the patronage of Lord Baltimore, my grandfather emigrated to Maryland and obtained a large plantation, and he was Attorney General for the colony. 
My father was an extraordinarily wealthy tobacco planter, and when he ascended to heaven when I was just twenty-five years old, he bequeathed to me a large estate. Over time I expanded my holdings and became the richest man in Maryland, and many thought I was the wealthiest man in all of the thirteen colonies. Some say that the colony was named after a Catholic queen, Queen Henrietta Mary, who was the wife of King Charles I, but I am partial to the belief that it was really named after the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, despite Maryland's origins, over time the Protestants took control of the colony and even persecuted the faithful of our noble religion. Catholics suffered under serious disabilities. We couldn't vote, hold public office, teach, practice law, or enjoy various other privileges in immunities. In fact, because my school was run by Jesuits, I was forced to attend school in secret. But when I was eight years old, my father took me to Catholic France and enrolled me in the Jesuit college at St. Omer's. After six years, I enrolled in another Jesuit seminary at Reims. Then I enrolled in the College of Louis-le-Grand, where I graduated from there after a year. I then studied law at Bourget, moved to Paris, and then studied the law in England. Upon my return to Maryland in 1765, I was quite the darling gentleman bachelor. I spoke French, danced, fenced, owned ten thousand acres of land in Carrollton, and was a fine horseman. I married my cousin, Mary, but of course. <laughs> Our family eventually had seven beautiful children. Now, as I explained earlier, although I was trained as a lawyer, the law barred me from practicing. <laughs> Did you catch that quip? Barred me. <laughs> Ah, well, not that I needed the money, but I desired a creative outlet, and when the Stamp Act was passed, I used my talents to write a robust opposition to that most scandalous of acts, and I became quite popular. Now, don't mistake what I just said. I didn't do this because I was bored. I was truly committed to fighting British oppression." Well, not learning from their mistakes, our proprietary governor gave me yet another opportunity to express myself. You see, the colony raised taxes to increase the compensation of our just wondrous governmental officers. And this happened in the early 1770s, not that far removed from the Stamp Act and the ridiculous litany of British oppressions, including those by which they kept trying to pick our pockets to pay for their own debts. The last measure we needed at this time was for our own colony to pick our pockets too. And for what purpose? To pay for their swarm of officers trying to eat us out of our subsistence. The Maryland Gazette made the ill-advised decision to print a fictional discussion between two colonists, dubbed First Citizen and Second Citizen, in which the Second Citizen, who clearly got the best of the argument, advocated for the tax. I could not let this outrage stand, so I picked up the moniker of First Citizen and attacked the tax in the press. Ah! 
When I was discovered as the author, I became even more famous and popular throughout the colony. <laughs> I was often referred to as First Citizen for the remainder of my life. I was unrelenting in opposing British oppression. I combined forces with the eventual co-signers Samuel Chase, William Packer, and Thomas Stone. I attended Maryland's first revolutionary convention and served on the Committee of Correspondence and the First Committee of Public Safety. Now, some say I graciously declined an invitation to attend the First Continental Congress as a delegate. They say I was concerned that my Catholic beliefs would be an unnecessary distraction. Others suggest that I was not appointed because I strongly favored independence and the Maryland Convention was unready to embrace such a bold measure. Well, I will certainly clear this up for you when we meet in the ever after. In any event, I attended Congress as a non-voting, unofficial member of the colony's delegation. I also accompanied Samuel Chase and Benjamin Franklin to enter into talks with the Canadians to see if they would support our efforts for freedom. Canada, as you no doubt remember, had been a French colony that had only become British at the end of the French and Indian War. It was mostly populated by French-speaking Catholics— I was a French-speaking Catholic, so it made eminent sense for me to attend. Plus, as John Adams reflected, my pro-liberty views and my rigorous support for colonial rights made me an intractable enemy to the royalist government, and my courage was highly valued. After we returned, the next vital issue of business was the upcoming vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence. It had been adjourned on June 7th until mid-July. Maryland had not yet given our delegates permission to vote for independence, so I returned to Annapolis with my fellow delegate Samuel Chase, who you have heard from previously and we tried to convince Maryland's revolutionary convention that the time had come, and it worked. Maryland authorized us to vote for independence. Now, unfortunately, when the Second Continental Congress approved independence on July 2nd, I was not in attendance. Maryland bestowed me with the honor of being an official congressional delegate on July 4th and I came to Philadelphia as a fully sanctioned voting member on July 18th. And ten days later, I was appointed to the Board of War. I signed the declaration on August 2nd with many other delegates. I am the only person to include anything other than my name. As noted earlier, there were several of us Charles Carrolls, and one of my fellow delegates saw me inscribe my name and jested that I might escape punishment if the British mistook my cousin for me. Well, I snatched back the quill and added of Carrollton to my signature and proudly exclaimed, They cannot mistake me now. Yes, well, and of course I was the only Catholic to sign the declaration as well. And when I finished, I was returning to my seat, another of the delegates declared, There go a few millions. <laughs> In other words, I had just signed, forfeiting all of my fortune. 
Well, in 1776, I helped to draft the Maryland Constitution and served on our board of war. I served as a Maryland state senator for years. Oh, I was also part of the congressional delegation that visited General George Washington at Valley Forge. And when Washington's command was threatened by a pernicious attempt to undermine him by the Conway Cabal, I helped break it. I was asked to serve as president of the Congress, but I declined. Instead, I stayed in Congress until 1788. I was then elected to the first federal constitutional convention, uh, but I did not attend. However, I did support ratification of the Constitution in Maryland, and I proudly served as one of Maryland's first U.S. senators under the Constitution from 1789 to 1792. And after serving in the State Senate from 1791 through 1801, I stepped away from political affairs and managed my now huge 79,000-acre estate. I did hold hundreds of slaves, and some say I might have been the biggest slaveholder in all of America. But, as I matured, I started to have serious doubts about slavery. In fact, I didn't just fret about it. I emancipated many slaves. Perhaps you might find it surprising to your somewhat cynical views. In 1789, while still a senator, I introduced a bill for the gradual abolition of slavery. But it went nowhere. How such misery and death would have been avoided had my bill just been passed. Well, as I aged, I evolved with the times. I witnessed the War of 1812, the Missouri Compromise, the establishment of Liberia, the opening of the Erie Canal, the nullification crisis triggered by South Carolina, uh, the invention of the typewriter, the growth of the United States population according to the census from about 4 million in 1790 to 12 million in 1830. I saw the Nat Turner Uprising and the Trail of Tears. I invested in canals and served on the first board of directors of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. I even laid down the railroad's cornerstone when I was 91. And then, on July 4th, 1826, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died. I was the last remaining signer of the Declaration. I was seen as the living embodiment of the American Revolution and was frequently visited and venerated. I freely shared my knowledge. Many remarked that I was highly cultivated, the model of regularity and sedateness of judgment. I had refined taste and pleasures with vivacity of spirit, with few equals during my long and bright existence. I survived six more years after Adams and Jefferson finally giving up the ghost and meeting the Holy Trinity on November 14th, 1832, when I was 95 years old. I was a religious minority who could have easily turned my back on my oppressors. I could have been resentful and hated my countrymen, but I knew that America was the single greatest blessing for those of us who love freedom and liberty. 
Yes, I was rich. And, yes, I was fortunate to avoid personal danger during the revolution. But I had no guarantee that my life and property would be secure. In fact, by staking my side with the rebellion, I risked everything. I pledged my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor by signing the declaration. But, as first citizen, <laughs> I knew it was worth the risk. And now I have the distinct honor of introducing Mr. George With. Why, thank you so much, Mr. Carroll. I am George With. I was born in 1726 in Elizabeth County, Virginia. My parents were very rich. Unfortunately, my father passed down when I was very young, just three years old. I was well-educated in the classics, and then my poor dear mother passed when I was but a young adult. I was alone but wealthy. As one of my biographers, Mr. Lawson, put it, my character not having become fixed, I launched out upon the dangerous sea of pleasure and dissipation, and for ten years on the morning of my life, I laid aside study and sought only personal gratification. Oh, what a wonderful time that decade was. But time once lost is lost forever. At about the age of 30, I became even wealthier when my older brother passed away and I inherited a large estate from him, which he had obtained when my mother had died. I finally came to the realization that I had squandered a decade and began to study the law. I became a lawyer in 1757 and quickly built a reputation as an excellent and very conscientious advocate. I never knowingly took on an unjust client or cause, and I would fire clients who I discovered lied. Perhaps uh, some small interest to you moderns is that I trained a young law student who joined my law firm, a certain Thomas Jefferson. He stayed for five years we became lifelong friends. I joined the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1754, and when the Stamp Act was enacted in 1765, I railed against it. I drafted Virginia's condemnation of the act, but I was so spirited that the House of Burgesses tempered it just a bit. I supported other true patriots like Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, and Peyton Randolph in Mountain Virginia's opposition. I also served as mayor of Williamsburg. In 1775, I was elected to Congress. I offered some cutting-edge legal theories in defense of our American rights. For example, I suggested that America could become an independent but equal nation within the British Empire, similar to the Commonwealth system that Canada, Australia, and others enjoy today. I also focused straight on to the king for our growing grievances. Joined by Richard Henry Lee, I strongly advocated that if the king did not assuage our grievances, then we had a right to become independent altogether. Historians disagree about whether I was there and voted for Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence and fellow delegate Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence and signed the declaration. 
Some say I was gone and even had a clerk sign the declaration on my behalf. This seems like a far-fetched theory, but you'll have to wait until we meet in Xanadu to learn the truth. Dr. Benjamin Rush remarked that although I seldom spoke in Congress, when I did, my speeches were sensible, correct, and pertinent. I was considered modest, peaceful, and gentle. I left Congress in 1776 to help establish a new government, governing laws for Virginia. In that endeavor, I was insisted by Thomas Jefferson and Edmund Pendleton, and I also had a primary hand in drafting the state constitution. In 1777, I became the Speaker of the House of Burgesses and then was appointed to the High Court of Chancery. That cult was reorganized, and I became the sole chancellor of the state, the highest judicial office. I kept that post my entire life and gained an excellent reputation as a jurist. I was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, 1787, and Virginia's ratification convention of the Constitution. After the Constitution was ratified, I served as Virginia's United States Senator, for two terms. Meanwhile, I was very invested in education and for a time taught law at the College of William and Mary. I was, in fact, the first law professor in America. Also interesting to your modern ears, my students included two future presidents and a chief justice of the United States, including Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, Chief Justice John Marshall and Speaker of the House and Secretary of State Henry Clay. I also taught at a private school for children that I opened, which was free to any who attended. I did not discriminate and taught African-American youth. In fact, I even taught Latin to a young African-American lad, Michael Brown. Michael Brown, along with another freed slave, Lydia Brodnax, attended to my needs in old age. Although I began life as a slaveholder, while I was alive, I manumitted all of my adult slaves. My will provided for the care of the youth I had not emancipated upon my death, along with another family, father, mother, and child I had previously freed. I died on June 8, 1800. This was after an agonizing two weeks that began after the onset of a meal that I was sharing with my caretakers, Michael Brown and Lydia Brodnax. One of my relatives, my grandnephew, who I had taken in, George with Sweeney, was accused of poisoning me with arsenic. There's some serious mystery about this. Some say I was not eating food but drinking coffee. Others that it was strawberries. But there is no question that I shared coffee and food with the Michael Brown and Lydia Brodnax. Michael died almost immediately. Broadnax was taken ill but quickly recovered. I, however, was in painful, wretched agony for two weeks. I was certain that my grandnephew Swinney tried to poison me based on the circumstances surrounding our joint illnesses and the circumstances surrounding the meal. There is some evidence that he had possession of arsenic and possibly used an axe to slice strawberries. See, the axe was discolored yellow, that being the telltale sign of arsenic, and found near strawberries. As I lay in pain, I changed my will 
to remove Sweeney from inheriting anything and instructed officials to search Sweeney's room for poison. As I died, I muttered, I am murdered. Indeed, Sweeney was charged with two counts of murder and forging some of my checks. He was caught trying to cash several checks using a forged signature of me, and this was before I had even passed on. But the scoundrel was acquitted of the murder charges because the best testimony against him was by my caretaker, Lydia Broadnax, who, as an African-American woman, could not testify against my white male relative. Karma, as they say, is a bitch. On the other hand, the importance of Lydia's missing testimony may be exaggerated. Some 14 men testified against Sweeney. The doctors who performed my autopsy disagreed about whether I was definitively poisoned versus having died from bile excess. And of course, all of the evidence was circumstantial. Sweeney was defended by two of my old friends, Edmund Randolph and William Wirt both brilliant lawyers and future U.S. Attorney Generals. Although my damn nephew was convicted of forgery, those charges were later tossed out because of a loophole in the law of forgery. That is, the victim had to be an individual, not a bank. The state lost interest in a new prosecution, and Sweeney walked a free man. Being a strong lover of the rule of law and a jurist myself, I must abide by the verdict. But if you want to know the full story, I will tell you when you join me in the city of God. Sweeney, by the way, is nowhere to be found here. (laughs) I had married twice, but no children survived into adulthood. And now I'm most pleased to introduce the eminent Richard Henry Lee. With much gratitude, Mr. With. I am Richard Henry Lee, and according to my family Bible, I was born on January 23, 1733, in Stratford, in Westmoreland County of Virginia. My family was wealthy and prominent, and I was educated in England, and I was quite enamored with ancient history, especially addressing the ancient republics of law, and fell in love with, just swooned over, liberty. When I was 19, I returned to Virginia and dedicated my life to public service. At the age of 20, I organized a military corps and commanded it. I offered my services and that of our corps to General Braddock in 1755 when he was tasked with the mission of confronting the French in what would become the outset of the French and Indian War. Braddock was a fool and refused to accept what he considered to be ill-trained and undistinguished volunteers. Disgusted, we left the field. Braddock not only fortuitously brushed us off, he ignored the excellent advice of his aide-de-camp, a certain Mr. George Washington, and Braddock's forces were ambushed and all but massacred by the French and Indian forces. Braddock, in fact, was fatally wounded. As Mr. With related, Kama is a bitch. In 1757, I was appointed a Justice of the Peace, and then at the age of 25, I became a delegate to the House of Burgesses. I was not the only Lee there. No, I am pleased to report that four of us brothers served in the House at the same time. I distinguished myself with soaring rhetoric, as well as my unflinching attack upon the corruption of the colony's treasurer, Mr. Robinson. Much earlier than many of our fellow delegates, I realized that colonial rights were being oppressed by the empire. 
We were Englishmen, yet our unalienable rights were constantly under assault, just because we lived in the colonies as opposed to England proper. What rubbish! When the Stamp Act was passed, I was the first Virginian to publicly oppose the measure. Although I came from the aristocracy, my manner of speaking was met with approval from all classes of people. With Patrick Henry, we became the heart and mind of the Virginia Sons of Liberty. We worked to challenge British oppression by organizing boycotts and loudly decrying British offenses. I advocated for the creation of the Committees of Correspondence, although several others claimed credit for the same. There is no doubt, however, that Thomas Jefferson and I started the Virginia Committee of Correspondence. I was naturally elected to represent Virginia in the First Continental Congress. I soon joined forces with John Adams as an outspoken advocate for vigorous action against the British. He called me one of the great orators of Congress, and some even gave me the moniker Cicero, the most brilliant orator of ancient Rome. I was considered one of the prime movers of Congress. I had a bit more flair to my orations than most, including using a black silk scarf that was tied around one of my hands. But that was not just for show. I had lost my four fingers in a hunting accident, and the scarf hid that most gruesome disfigurement. When Massachusetts began to bear the brunt of the whip of England, I helped organize Virginia solidarity with our northern brethren. Some were surprised by our unflinching support, but I understood that colonial unity was essential to defending our liberties. While John Adams moved that Washington be appointed the commander-in-chief of the Continental Forces, I personally wrote the commission and instructions for the general. I served on the most important committees and drafted the second address to the people of England, asking for their assistance in protecting American liberties. I am most famously known, as you no doubt already know, for introducing in the Second Continental Congress the Resolution for Independence. There were actually three resolutions, one for independence, one for seeking foreign alliances, and one for creating a plan of confederation among the newly independent states. As the man who made this motion, by custom, I would have usually been assigned the opportunity to draft any supporting documentation, but I deferred to John Adams' suggestion that a committee be created for this purpose, which included Thomas Jefferson as Virginia's sole representative. Whether I agreed for political reasons, that is, I decided to spend more time on assisting the drafting of the Constitution of the State of Virginia, or because I needed to attend to my personal affairs in Virginia, is a mystery to history. But I will let you in on the secret when we meet in the Celestial City. Also, I was confident that the resolution was in the most capable hands it would pass. When it came up for debate in July, I did not return to Congress. Likewise, I did not attend the debate and vote for the declaration. But I, of course, was most pleased to sign it. I remarked to Mr. Jefferson that the thing is in its nature so good that no crookery can spoil the dish for the palates of free men. Now, I lost my seat in Congress when I took my brother Arthur Lee's side in a political controversy. We had accused Congress's agent in France, a Mr. Silas Dean, of corruption. Was Dean truly corrupt? Another mystery to be answered in the promised land. Still, I was soon returned to Congress and remained until 1779. After I returned home, I served as a lieutenant in the Westmoreland County Militia. I was no mere bystander. I served at the head of the militia in defense of our country. I fought, and in fact, my horse was shot out from under me. After the conclusion of the revolution, I returned to Congress in 1784 and served as its president from 1784 to 1785. I left Congress in 1789 and declined an invitation to serve in the Constitutional Convention. 
if truth be told. I vigorously opposed the Constitution's adoption. After it was ratified despite my opposition, I led the charge to add a Bill of Rights. I was also honored to be elected as one of Virginia's first two U.S. Senators, but I had to resign because of ill health in 1792. I had worked myself into exhaustion and could no longer carry on. During my career, I worked for my home state to give up our strong claim to certain unsettled western territories. This, I believe, was necessary for comity in union of a young republic. I met my maker on June 19, 1794. I had two wives and nine children. My first wife died of pneumonia at the age of 30 and departed this cruel world leaving me and our four children absolutely heartbroken. My second wife, however, was quite an enduring woman and bore us five more children. Although I came from a leading family, since I dedicated myself to public service, I lived modestly, and for a span of two months actually only survived on wild pigeon. Three of my brothers played leading roles in the establishment of America, being co-signer of the Declaration Francis Lightfoot, as well as William and Arthur. Despite what you might conjecture, I hated the slave trade, was an outspoken opponent of the most dreaded institution, and very much wanted to tax the importation of slaves out of existence. In fact, my first notable speech in the House of Burgesses was a vigorous attack on the slave trade. I attacked it for many reasons, including its immorality. I thundered that we could not possibly believe that our fellow creatures are no longer to be considered as created in the image of God as well as ourselves, and equally entitled to liberty and freedom by the great law of nature? Are we not Christians? We needed to convince the world that we know and practice our true interest, and that we pay a proper regard to the dictates of justice and humanity. The audience was astounded, and I developed my reputation for fearlessness and independence. I took my pledge of my life, fortune, and honor Seriously, I worked myself into exhaustion and was almost killed defending the new republic when my horse was shot out from under me. I sacrificed my ability to earn a fortune for dedicating myself to public service. Most important, I lived up to my sacred honor. I have the most distinct privilege of introducing you to someone you might have heard of as well, a Mr. Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Richard Henry Lee, it is only most fitting that you introduce me, being that between the two of us, your resolution of independence, and my declaration justifying it, that we have changed the course of human history forever. I am Thomas Jefferson. I am most pleased to meet you. I must confess, some people have spent years, no, careers, in researching and writing books about me. I have been called many names, including Long Tom, the Pen of the Revolution, Apostle of the Constitution, Sage of Monticello, American Sphinx, the Man of the People, Father of the Declaration, Red, Red Fox, and most enduring Mad Tom. I wrote that all men are created equal, but I held slaves. Unlike George Washington and George With, I did not emancipate my slaves while I lived or even upon my death. Some claim I had an affair with an enslaved woman, and she bore my children. Some say that this was cruel. Others say it made me human. Well, I have only a short time to share with you today, and the illustrious Judge Warren told me to give a brief overview of my life. 
but that is an impossible task. Still, I will give you a flavor of my life. But before I say anything more, I want you to know that on my tombstone I ask that three, and only three, items be inscribed. Author of the Declaration of Independence, author of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. But I started at the end, so let's return to my beginnings. I entered this glorious world on April 13th, 1743, at Shadewell, a plantation in which you now know as Albemarle County, Virginia. My father, Peter, was a wealthy plantation owner. When he died, I was but fourteen years old, and I inherited the plantation, along with many slaves. I obtained an excellent education and was tutored by a Scottish tutor, a clergyman named Douglas, and I later attended the College of William and Mary. And, as you heard from my dear Mr. George With, he educated me in the practice of law. He had more influence on me than any other single figure in my life. Now, in 1765, I heard Patrick Henry rail against the Stamp Act, and the fire of liberty was forever lit in my heart and soul. I began building my home in Monticello in 1768, but did not finish it until the 1800s. I must observe, despite my immodesty, it is an architectural marvel unto itself. I was elected to the House of Burgesses in 1769 when I was 26 years old and quickly established myself as a fabulous writer, but not much of an orator. I was elected to the Continental Congress in 1775, the year before I had written a summary view of the rights of British America as suggested instructions to Virginia's congressional delegation. And the delegates in Congress were so impressed that it was soon converted into a pamphlet, and it in essence became my rough draft of the Declaration of Independence. When Richard Henry Lee made a resolution for independence on June 7th, it was tabled to discern the intent of some of the colonies, that is, to obtain their consent to vote for independence. During the lull, Congress appointed a committee of five to draft the Declaration of Independence. In addition to me, the committee included John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Livingston, and Robert Sherman. Now, Adams and I were best equipped to draft the Declaration, and he insisted I do so because I was a Virginian, better liked in Congress, and ten times the writer. Mr. Adams was stubborn, persuasive, and his keen intellect would broker no dissent. So I went into my rented second-floor parlor on Market Street in Philadelphia. I used a portable writing desk that, yes, I invented, and I deliberately and, somewhat furiously, drafted the declaration. Adams and Franklin made a few suggestions, which I readily adopted, and then the document was laid before the Congress for consideration, and Congress painfully made dozens of edits. Thank Divine Province for John Adams, because he defended every single word of my draft. I was struck dumb. Each change felt like a dagger to my heart. Finally, the interminable debate was over, and it was approved on July 4th. I was thirty-three, the youngest Virginian delegate, and my life, 
and the world would never be the same. I took a leading role in Virginia, helping to revise our code of laws with Mr. George With and Edmund Pendleton, eliminating some terrible vestiges of the feudal system and becoming a model for the rest of America. With my dear friend James Madison's help, I constructed a hedge of protection about the free exercise of religious liberty and disestablished the Church of Virginia, the first time in human history that the supreme law of the land did so. I also served as governor for two years during the American Revolution. Unfortunately, during that time, the English invaded and they burned down some of the capital. I fled, barely escaping with my life, and this was not a high point in my career, and my reputation was tarnished. Well, after I retired, the infamous British officer Bloody Ban Bannister Tarleton almost took me captive at Monticello, but I was able to take a fleet horse and vanished into the woods. I then served as America's minister to France for five years. George Washington honored me, appointing me as America's first Secretary of State. My old friend and then-political nemesis, John Adams, beat me for the presidency after George Washington retired. I became vice president. In the next election, that of 1800, in a rematch, I defeated Adams. This revolution of 1800 proved to the world that a peaceful transfer of power between political enemies could occur. We set a standard the world had never seen. And my first inaugural address is one for the ages. My two-term presidency was a bit of a mixed success. I let the awful Alien and Sedition Acts expire, I entered into the Louisiana Purchase, and sent Lewis and Clark on their amazing expedition. To avoid war with England and France, I imposed an import and export embargo that ruined American commerce and caused great distress to our economy. It was worth the pain to avoid yet another war, but my reputation was forever tainted. When I retired from public service after my second term as president, I worked endlessly to help found the University of Virginia, and I long supported free, common school, elementary school education for all. As an inventor and scientist, I made several groundbreaking discoveries and inventions, including in the field of agriculture. And, of course, I was an amazing prolific writer. My personal life was marred with tragedy. The love of my life, my wife, Martha Skelton, who I married in 1772, died after ten years of marriage. I was thrown into a deep depression. Of our six children, only two daughters lived to adulthood, and only one lived longer than me. Like a silly child, though, I fell in love with a married woman while in Paris. <laughs> what a mistake that was. Now, I know that to modern sensibilities I can seem a hypocrite, a monster even, in connection with the enslaved persons I held in bondage. Please know this. I do not disagree. I knew that slavery was evil. Like many founders, I believed the institution would eventually die out. No one predicted that the cotton gin would change the course of the South in such an intractably horrid way. 
When I worked on revising the codes of laws in Virginia in 1776, I was the first to propose legislation to ban the importation of slaves. Later, I drafted with care the Northwest Ordinance, which forever barred slavery in what would become five new free states. I eagerly signed the law that banned the slave trade to America. I freed a few slaves of my own, all Hemmings, but unfortunately, when I expired, I was basically insolvent and many of the slaves were sold to pay for my debts. On July 3rd, 1826, I could feel my life slipping away. I just needed to hang on for one more day. And on July 4th, 1826, fifty years to the day that the Declaration of Independence was adopted, I said with a distinct voice, I resign myself to my God and my child to my country. And soon thereafter, I passed away. And so did John Adams. Adams's last words were that Jefferson still lives. But the supreme judge of the world fooled him. I was carried away but a few hours earlier. For all my faults, I helped advanced freedom, liberty, and equality in ways that shook the old world to its core and set the stage for the march of freedom and equality across the world. I pledged and risked my life and my sacred honor to America. And now I have the auspicious honor of introducing Mr. Benjamin Harrison. With much gratitude, I am Benjamin Harrison. Like Charles Carroll, there were many Benjamin Harrisons in my family. Truth be told, I was the fifth member of my lineage to possess that name so some like to refer to me as Benjamin Harrison V, but I was never referred to that way in my lifetime. I was born on April 7th, 1726, in Berkeley. <laughs> no, not California. That did not exist then, but in Berkeley, Charles City County, Virginia. My family were among the first settlers here, having arrived from England in 1640. Due to fortunate family relationships, we acquired some of the most fertile tracts of land in the colony and developed a sizable estate. We were very wealthy. Like Thomas Jefferson, I attended William and Mary. While away at college, in a most distressing incident, my father and two of my sisters were killed by a lightning strike of our mansion. Yes, a lightning strike! Well, when the lightning struck, I was already having disagreements with my professors. I left college, returned home as the oldest male heir, began to manage the estate, although I was but a minor. I was an excellent businessman, if I may say so myself, and I grew my father's estate to eight plantations and a superb shipping enterprise. Before I was 20, I was elected to the House of Burgesses, and soon became a major force. Shortly, I became Speaker of the House, and my influence became tremendous. When the Stamp Act passed, the governor wished to co-opt me. He tempted me by offering me a seat on the Executive Council. But he misjudged my character. I was a fervent defender of colonial liberties and despised the Stamp Act. I refused the offer, 
and instead threw my full-fledged support behind the opposition. From 1773 to 1776, I was heavily engaged in the opposition to the creeping British tyranny. 1774, I was among the first group of seven Virginian delegates to the First Continental Congress. I was so determined to protect our unalienable rights that I declared I would walk to Philadelphia if necessary, (laughs) which was quite a declaration considering my rather rotund figure. When I attended to Philadelphia, my roommate was none other than George Washington himself. The next year, I returned to Congress, served on a committee to visit George Washington at Cambridge, near Boston, to assist in military plans. I became chairman of a congressional committee that was tasked with corresponding with foreign countries, which eventually became moot with the appointment of various congressional agents to Europe and other developments within Congress. During the Second Continental Congress, John Adams was not particularly taken by me. To the contrary, he described me as indolent, luxurious, heavy, and no use in Congress or a committee, and in fact, was an embarrassment. That was grossly unfair. I served on three most important committees, state, war, and navy. (laughs) True, I enjoyed luxury and was a bit heavy. But please, have you seen John Adams? (laughs) Dr. Benjamin Rush's assessment was a bit fair. He thought I too attached to Virginia. Why shouldn't I be? I again noted that I enjoyed good company and luxury versus work, but also acknowledged that I was a useful member of the Congress, sincerely devoted to the welfare of the country. At one time in Congress, we determined we needed a new president. Many wanted John Hancock to preside, but he claimed it was a poor idea. Now I am six foot four and about 240 pounds, Well, good old Hancock was just a wee thing. <laughs> I strode across the floor, grabbed him, and plopped Hancock into the president's chair. I explained, We shall show Mother Britain how little we care for her by making a Massachusetts man our president, whom she has excluded from pardon by public proclamation. (laughs) You may remember Hancock and old Samuel Adams were being hunted for treason by the Empire at this point. (laughs) As I mentioned, I was a big, big man. Some like to call me the false staff of Congress. Everyone in my generation understood what that meant, but I suspected not so in modern times. To John Falstaff was a well-endowed character in four plays of the immortal bard, William Shakespeare. Falstaff was a master of punning and wordplay, a true genius of humor. (laughs) I proudly accept the nickname. On the question of independence, everyone knew my position. I was warmly in favor. When we debated Richard Henry Lee's resolution, we moved into a committee of the whole, and with great satisfaction, I chaired the meeting. I also chaired the committee of the whole during the debate over the Declaration of Independence. Of course, I voted for the resolution and the declaration and signed it on August 2nd. When I signed the declaration, I looked at Elbridge Jerry in Massachusetts. I joked with him that if we were both hung for what we were doing, our fates would be different. I explained, with me, it will be over in a minute. But with you, you'll be dancing in the air an hour after I'm gone. (laughs) 
Paul Elbridge was obviously emaciated, and I was, well, well fed. My first cousin, Kata Braxton, also signed the declaration. Later, I would chair the committee of the whole debate on the Articles of Confederation. Because of pressing domestic issues, I resigned my seat in Congress in 1777 and returned home. I was immediately re-elected to take a seat in the House of Burgesses and as Speaker, an office I maintained with great satisfaction until 1782. I stopped serving in the House of Burgesses because I was elected governor. I served for two terms, retired, and then was immediately re-elected to the House of Burgesses. Apparently, I was an indispensable man in that august body. During the Revolution, the accursed Benedict Arnold invaded Virginia. Thankfully, my family and I were able to slip away before that wretch occupied my home. The traitor burned many of my possessions, including paintings in my shipyard. He also seized my cargo. I served in Virginia's ratifying convention for the federal constitution. I opposed it because I believed it needed to include a Bill of Rights. I was wary of accepting the implicit promise that a Bill of Rights would be added after its ratification. In 1791, I was re-elected governor. The night after, I hosted a celebratory dinner, passed away the next day. This was fitting. I would rather die at the top of my game than just fade away. My dearest wife, Elizabeth Bassett, (laughs) perhaps a relative of a bombastic Brent Bassett, (laughs) he does sound quite a bit like me with a weird colorless accent. Well, she survived me by one year. My dear wife was Martha Washington's niece. Seven of our children survived into adulthood. One, William Henry Harrison, became president, and his son, and my namesake, Benjamin Harrison, also became president. My pledge was fulfilled. Some of my fortune was destroyed. I had to flee to preserve my life and I'm attained my honor, good humor and all. Mr. Thomas Nelson Jr., please address our gracious audience. Why, thank you, Falstaff. I mean, my dear Benjamin Harrison, near the fifth, of course. Now, I am Thomas Nelson Jr. I arrived on this earth on the day after Christmas in 1738 in Yorktown, Virginia. My grandfather, who was known as Scotch Tom, immigrated to America. And my father, who was born in England before my grandfather immigrated, through hard work and industry, amassed a plantation and a fortune. Now, as such, beginning at the age of 14, I was educated in England and studied with the famous Dr. Proteus, who would later become Bishop of London. After I graduated from Cambridge and Trinity College in 1761, I returned home and assisted my father in managing our plantation and became a member of the Royal Council at the age of 26. Through this office, I became well acquainted with Mr. Jefferson. I also expanded my family's affairs into the mercantile business, and we became major merchants as well. In 1774, I took my expected place in the House of Burgesses, and was a vocal ally of Boston and an opponent of British tyranny. I joined the rest of the House of Burgesses 
in defying Royal Governor Lord Dunmore's attempt to dissolve our legislative body. When we received the order, we went down the street to the Raleigh Tavern. And no, it wasn't in Raleigh, it was in Williamsburg, of course. Now, later that year, I served in the first revolutionary government, the Convention of Virginia, which met at Williamsburg in 1774. The following year, I returned to the convention and proposed that Virginia organize a militia to protect the rights of the people. Some thought this treasonous. I thought it a matter of justice and natural rights. The resolution was naturally approved. We established three regiments, each one commanded by a colonel. I had the distinction of commanding one such regiment, as did Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee. On November 7th of that year, several men and I boarded the British ship Virginia and dumped its tea in the York River. Uh, we may not have been as famous as the earlier Boston Tea Party, but our intentions were clear and our hearts were stout. As this was a political protest, we did no harm to the ship, its crew, or any other cargo. And this wondrous event is reenacted to this very day at the Waterman's Museum in Yorktown. And you should join in the fun some day, you know. I was then elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1775, and in May 1776 we had ousted the damnable royal government in Virginia, and I moved that Virginia declare independence. And the motion was passed. I then went on to Philadelphia, informing the rest of the delegation. Richard Henry Lee could now make his famous resolution on June 7th. I was an infrequent participant in the debates, but I did put in many hours of committee work. I strongly supported Richard Henry Lee's resolution and voted for it and the declaration, and of course I signed the declaration as well. Unfortunately, in 1777 I had to retire from Congress after suffering a disease of the head. It was of a paralytic nature, and I had serious problems with my memory. In your day, you may have labelled it a stroke or something similar, and I also seriously suffered under asthma, for which there was no treatment except opium, steam baths, marijuana, bloodletting, and leeches. Unfortunately, this most wonderful concoction failed to work. I was also a bit of a Falstaff myself, if not in humour, at least in wide girth. But despite my physical ailments, when the British fleet appeared on the coast of Virginia, the governor called me into military service as the head of Virginia's militia. But the fleet turned away from Virginia and moved to invade Philadelphia. Likewise, when Congress called for more troops in 1778, I organized a light cavalry troop and marched to Philadelphia. But by the time we arrived, the British had already backed off to their base in New York. Knowing the dire straits we were in, I donated money and supplies to support the war effort. I personally raised money to help the militia and overall war effort and pledged my own fortune as collateral if the Congress failed to repay the debt. I often gave money to families who would have otherwise become destitute as the head of their families joined the militia. I was instrumental in ensuring that funds were raised to support the French Navy, which, of course, would be pivotal in our long-term victory. And all of this activity actually seemed to re-energize me, and I rejoined Congress in 1779. But 
in just a couple months, my ailments returned, and I was forced back home. In 1781, I became governor of our great state, succeeding Thomas Jefferson. I was also a Virginia militia brigadier general. This was at a great time of danger to Virginia. The traitor Benedict Arnold, joined by the British regulars, was burning coastal towns and the British, led by the damnable Colonel Tarleton, tried to capture our government. Soon, however, the die would be cast. When the decisive battle of the American Revolution came, I was there as the commander of the Virginia militia. We worked with Lafayette to trap the British. Once again, I had to expend a small fortune on keeping my troops together. I am, of course, discussing the Battle of Yorktown. You may remember I was from Yorktown. As we bombarded the town with cannon and gunfire, I noticed that my mansion was pristine. I demanded to know why, and I was told that the men respected me too much to fire upon it. And yet it was a beehive of officers, quite possibly the headquarters of the British commander, Lord Cornwallis. Perhaps the treacherous British suspected that my troops would avoid firing on the commander's home, as indeed they had done. I did not hesitate. Rain it with cannon and lead, damn it, do it! I will pay fifty guineas for every British soldier to hit it. Do it! A firestorm erupted. <laughs> Little did we know that the British were having a dinner party in my home at the time. <laughs> Two of the officers were killed immediately. The damage to my home was repairable, but the death of the officers was priceless. Although my home was heavily damaged, the Lord spared it from total destruction, and you can visit it to this day, a monument of my wealth and patriotism, and there are still American cannonballs lodged in it. But my health was failing once again, and I retired, this time permanently, from public service just one month after Yorktown. My home was not the only part of my fortune to suffer assault. My generosity of ensuring the debts of our country often came home to roost. I had to sell lands and slaves to cover the debts not covered by the revolutionary governments. After all, I had pledged my fortune. I married Lucy Grimes, and my lovely wife and I had at least eleven children. How many exactly? Well, ask me when we meet in the celestial sun. I passed on January 4th, 1789, into the embrace of my great God. Like so many of my fellow delegates, I not only pledged, but suffered great damage to my fortune. I even targeted my own home for destruction, and I risked my neck more than once to defend our liberty in battle. And I survived battle, but that was attributable to the divine providence. And now I am very much delighted to make your acquaintance with Francis Lightfoot Lee. I am much obliged, Mr. Nelson. I am Francis Lightfoot Lee. My birthday was October 14th, 1734. You might ask, is my middle name Lighthorse a nickname? Decidedly no. You might ask, why would my father bless me with that name? A superb question. <laughs> You'll have to ask my father when you meet him in the evergreen fields of eternity. 
You have already heard about my family when my older brother Richard Henry Lee visited with you. I was born at Stratford Hall in Virginia, as was one of my famous indirect descendants, Robert E. Lee. I was one of eleven children, and both my parents died before I was an adult. Because my father passed away so early, I was not sent to England for schooling. Rather, I was tutored by an excellent Scotch clergyman, the Reverend Dr. Craig. Like much of my family, I was a wealthy planter. In 1758, I became a trustee for the village of Leesburg, and then in 1765, I joined the House of Burgesses. With the passage of the Stamp Act, in the same year, I became inflamed at the British policy of oppression, and I became a resolute, unbending opponent of such policies. Although my brother, Richard Henry, and I often acted in concert, I had, according to Dr. Benjamin Rush, the more acute and correct mind. I also was even a more strident patriot. In 1773, I was an organizer of our first committee of correspondence. I petitioned for the calling of our revolutionary Virginia Convention and was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1775. Despite my warm passion, I was quiet, even shy. However, I was well respected for sound judgment, unwavering principles, and persevering industry. I worked tremendously hard in the Board of War and the Military and Marine Committees in Congress. Naturally, I voted for my brother's resolution for independence, approved the declaration, and signed it on August 2nd. My brother Arthur was serving in France to drum up French support and raise British officers, and by very peculiar goings-on, accused Silas Dean, another American agent in France, of corruption. I, of course, strongly supported Arthur, as a loyal brother should. Unfortunately for Arthur and the rest of our esteemed family, the charge rebounded as false. His reputation was sullied, and Richard Henry Lee lost his seat in Congress in 1777. Blood, being thicker than the fickle winds of politics, I resigned in protest. The air of their ways having been exposed, Virginia refused to accept my resignation and reappointed Richard Henry. My time in Congress was productive as evidenced by the fact that I helped draft the Articles of Confederation. In 1779, I retired from Congress permanently. Then I served in the Virginia State Senate for four years. I became an ardent supporter of the Federal Constitution. Richard Henry and I parted ways on that issue. After an attack of pleurisy, which affected both me and my wife, I entered God's eternally green fields on January 11, 1797. My wife quickly joined me. We left behind no children. Mark Twain would later remark that but for the fact that I signed the declaration, my life might have been forgotten because I mostly worked behind the scenes. Still, he remarked that my life 
was a most useful and worthy one. It was a good and profitable voyage. In short, Francis Lightfoot Lee was a gentleman, a word which meant a great deal in his day, though means nothing whatever in ours. Truer words have not been spoken. Thankfully, neither my life or fortune were put to the test, but I did not know that when I signed the declaration. I put everything on the table, and I preserved with great vigor my sacred honor. I have the distinct honor of presenting Mr. Carter Braxton. With much gratitude, I am Carter Braxton, and was born on Patriots Week Eve, that is, September 10th, 1736, in Newington, in King and Queen's County, Virginia. My father was a wealthy plantation owner, and I was very wealthy, with land, money, and slaves. My mother was in fact the daughter of Robert King Carter. My grandfather had the moniker King because he was tremendously wealthy, owning forty-two plantations in all. I lost my mother when she died in childbirth, my birth, and my father fled home to heaven when I was but a teenager. Like several other founders from Virginia, I attended William and Mary College. When I married my dear love Judith, my wealth also increased, she being well endowed. But life is cruel. She too passed away in childbirth from just our second child. In despair in 1757, I left for England and plunged my attention into business. By the time I returned in 1760, I had fallen in love in England. I also soon fell in love with another wife, Elizabeth. Her father was the royal receiver of General Customs for Virginia. Our marriage was amazingly fruitful, sixteen children in all. I tried but failed to invest in the growing slave trade. I was elected to the House of Burgesses and voted to approve Patrick Henry's Virginia Resolves, which boldly condemned the Stamp Act one of the early daring attacks on British tyranny in the colonies. When Governor Lord Botetourt dissolved the colonial assembly for opposing with manly firmness British oppression, I joined many other members and immediately signed a non-importation agreement that was designed to oppose the British. For a short period, I became sheriff of my county, but resigned when the new governor, Lord Dunmore, took office and I refused to serve for such a despicable instrument of oppression. When Dunmore also dissolved the House of Burgesses, I joined other delegates in calling for a revolutionary convention to meet at Williamsburg. Later, I served as a member of the Second Revolutionary Assembly that took power when Lord Dunmore abdicated his position and the House of Burgesses had already dissolved. In 1775, when Patrick Henry led an armed corps to protect Williamsburg's gunpowder from imperial confiscation, British regulars and Henry's militia were at a military standoff, and I stepped into the breach and mediated a peaceful solution. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress that same year. My cousins, Benjamin Harrison and Thomas Nelson, joined me. 
Some thought I would be an appropriate counterweight to the revolutionary-inclined John Adams, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams. Truth be told, at first, I wanted nothing to do with independence. I proclaimed that independence is in truth a delusive bait. We had no navy to speak of. We were defenceless. When I spoke, I was considered very persuasive, prudent, and even tempered. My virtue and morality were above reproach. The day before the fateful vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution of independence, I still opposed it. But on July 2nd, I joined the vote and approved the resolution. I then voted for the declaration and signed it. Despite my last-minute conversion, I was not returned to Congress. Eh, little loss. Instead, I served in the Virginia legislature for the remainder of my life. I was honored to vote for Thomas Jefferson and James Madison's Virginia statutes for religious liberty. I was no idle man during the American Revolution. Once I made the bet for revolution against my natural instincts, I went all in. I purchased from my own fortune supplies for necessary military supplies, lent a huge amount of money to the Continental Congress, and even suggested that slaves should fight for our cause. Meanwhile, I had partnered with the British before the war in shipping, and my ships and cargoes were seized by the Empire. I lost it all. My plantations were assaulted and severely damaged, although my homes did survive. The Congress never repaid the large loan I made in our darkest hour, which caused me severe hardship. See, many of my own debtors failed to pay me, and then my creditors came after me, driving me into near ruin. Suffering what you likely would call a stroke, I entered the pearly gates at the age of 61 on October 10, 1797. Although I was very reluctant to join the revolution, when I did so, the sacrifices to my fortune for the cause of liberty can only be seen as an affirmation of my pledge and sacred honor. And now I am well disposed to introduce yet another who had the same honor, Mr. Robert Morris. With much gratitude, I am Robert Morris. I was born on January 31st, 1734, in Lancashire, England. My father was a merchant, engaged in trade with America. When I was but a wee child, he came here to America, leaving me with my beloved grandmother. He finally sent for me when I was 13 years old. I obtained schooling then in Philadelphia. My father was taken from me when I was just 15 years old. Due to his care, I was already being apprenticed as a merchant with a Mr. Charles Willing, who completed my apprenticeship most graciously. I then became his partner in 1754 in a mercantile business. We were more than satisfactory in our affairs. We quickly became the largest importing house in Philadelphia. In fact, we even had a monopoly of exporting tobacco to France. Many of your scholars consider my efforts to be part of a holy trinity. George Washington, they say, led the military to victory. Benjamin Franklin secured our French ally, 
again indispensable to victory. And me, I paid for it all. I supported the 1774 import boycott of British trade. As the largest importer in Philadelphia, this eviscerated my business. But I knew it was the only action a lover of liberty could take. I also worked to ensure that other similarly situated businesses complied with such measures. However, my opposition to English oppression increased exponentially when I learned of the outrage of Lexington and Concord. I still remember it. I was a member of the St. George's Society. Oh, you don't know about that, do you? Well, we can catch up in Elysium. And we were celebrating St. George's Day at a fine dinner when we heard the news. The indignation of the attendees reached a fevered pitch, and most of the party dispersed in agitation and disgust. But the remnant who stayed pledged by solemn vow to dedicate our lives, fortunes, and sacred honour to the American Revolution. A few short months later, I was appointed by Pennsylvania to the Second Continental Congress in 1775 and immediately began to work as a member of a secret committee charged with the financing of Congress, including obtaining non-English imports to help outfit the new American army and navy. The imports were paid with in-kind American goods. The next year I was appointed as a special commissioner to obtain money for our fledgling government. Although I hated British tyranny, I was very concerned about supporting independence so soon. On July 1st, in its preliminary vote, like Carter Braxton, I voted against independence. However, the next day, knowing that unity was the key to our success, I abstained from the vote on Richard Henry Lee's resolution of independence. Although I didn't vote for independence, I signed the declaration. I also continued to serve in Congress, the only delegate who did not support independence who still remained in Philadelphia. My business partner, Mr. Willing, was also a delegate. He also voted against independence, declined to sign the declaration, and never served in Congress again. Well, I soon came around to support the decision of Congress for independence, and in 1777, I apologized for not joining the vote. My services in Congress became indispensable. Not only was I able to contribute directly, but I could motivate, cajole, and befriend others to do the same. In short, I led the financing of the American Revolution, without which we were doomed. George Washington more than once directly asked me for funds to finance the operations of the army. And if I may, one such example illustrates my extreme utility. When the army was in full retreat in New Jersey, just a ragtag army falling apart at the seams, the army needed funds for just the basics. Ammunition, boots, food, you name it, the army needed it. And I personally procured solely on my good credit $10,000. This, I humbly reflect, was the mark of divine providence. Spy, I was basically alone in Philadelphia, the rest of Congress having fled to Baltimore. I thankfully received George Washington's message and was despondent about how to help. In my despondency, 
I strolled to my lodgings from my counting room and, by pure happenstance, met a friend, a wealthy Quaker no less, to whom I confided my circumstances. The man asked, Mr. Morris, what security can thou give? I responded, my note and my honour. The Quaker, God bless him, replied, Robert, thou shalt have it. Washington, he received his money, procured his supplies, and delivered a masterstroke to the thunderstruck Hessians when he crossed the Delaware. And I delivered such salvation more than once, just in the nick of time. To highlight just one more vital time, in 1781, I was with Washington at his camp upon the Hudson River in Westchester County. He desperately desired to attack Sir Henry Clinton in New York. But a French admiral ally refused to lend him the naval support he needed for such an attack. Upon reading the admiral's letter, correspondence conveying this refusal, Washington almost immediately thought of another strategy, to trap Lord Cornwallis and his army in Virginia. Washington turned to Richard Peters of Pennsylvania, who was the secretary and a member of the Continental War Board who was also visiting with Washington. He asked Peters what he could do to help with the expedition. Peters, who would later become an exemplary judge, replied simply and truthfully, with money, everything, without nothing. Peters looked at me while he spoke. I replied, let me know the sum you need. Before noon, the plans and costs were conceived. I pledged to obtain it, and I did so solely on my own responsibility. I raised approximately $1 million to fund the Battle of Yorktown. And of course, that was the campaign that won our nation's freedom. After I retired from Congress in 1778, Thomas Paine and others accused me of corruption. Because of my wealth and the large amounts of funds coming in and out of my personal business and government business, it was easy to charge me with corruption. But it was all poppycock. And, thankfully, I was exonerated of those ridiculous charges. I attended the Annapolis Convention, the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, which led to the Constitutional Convention, which I also attended. George Washington thought I ought to be the first Secretary of the Treasury under the new Constitution, but I recommended Alexander Hamilton. And the rest, as they say, is history. And I'm not sure Hamilton has actually forgiven me all these years later. Still, I strongly supported Hamilton's policies in Congress. When assisting our young revolutionary zeal, I often had to rely on my own credit, which was much more solid than that of our fledgling nation. Because of my success, I served as the superintendent of finance under the Articles of Confederation and later was pivotal to establishing the Bank of North America, our nation's first government-incorporated bank. This was accomplished in 1781, a very dark period in the Revolution when Congress's credit was nearly worthless. Again and again, I had to pledge my own credit to obtain desperately needed money. Still, the bank helped finance the revolution and the early republic. I played the same role for the Pennsylvania Bank. I had the great privilege of signing not just the Declaration of Independence, but also the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. Only one other person did the same, and that was Roger Sherman of Connecticut. 
Now, instead of serving in the executive as Washington had originally suggested, I served as a term as a U.S. Senator for Pennsylvania under the new Constitution. And I retired from public service in 1795. And how was I repaid for all this, you might ask? Well, I invested heavily in the New York Western lands. You must understand that these lands were now open to settlement with our beating back the British Empire. Unfortunately, because Napoleon threw Europe into a frenzied bloodbath, immigration to America vanished. And, with the loss of immigrants, the value of the lands I had purchased dropped precipitously. Soon, my debts exceeded the value of my holdings, and I was forced to liquidate, that is, sell, almost all my possessions. I sunk so low that I was imprisoned in a debtor's prison in Philadelphia. But George Washington did not forget about me. He even dined with me in prison. And I was released from prison after three and a half years, and lived another five years after that. I lived very modestly in a small home with my beautiful wife, living off a small annuity that she had. Thankfully, my dear wife Mary, sister of the William White, the first Protestant Episcopal Bishop of Pennsylvania, and I lived a wondrous marriage, and we had five sons and two daughters. Fighting back asthma and ill health for years, I was thankfully relieved of my earthly prison on May 8, 1806. Of course, I lived up to my pledge of my fortune for the American Revolution. What would have happened to me had I not? Maybe I could have avoided the indignation of rotting in a debtor's prison for over three years. But then my sacred honor, that honor that goes beyond time but lives forever, would have been stained. No, I regret it not. And I am now most humbled to introduce Dr. Benjamin Rush. With much gratitude, I am Dr. Benjamin Rush. I was born in Burberry, Pennsylvania, not far from Philadelphia, on January 4th, 1746. Or was it Christmas Eve the year before? Your modern sources do not agree. Don't ask me. I wasn't sentient yet. If you really care, you can ask my mother when you meet her in the next world. I came from a humble family. My grandfather was a military officer in Lord Cromwell's army. After Cromwell died, my father, sensing that the Commonwealth was likely to devolve into yet another despotic monarchy, left England and settled in Pennsylvania. My father passed away when I was just six years old, and my mother, brother, and I had a small farm to eke out a living. My mother, very desirous that I should be properly educated, moved us to Philadelphia and worked in a store to pay for my education. I graduated from an academy in Maryland, then graduated from Princeton in 1760 at the age of 16. Although my first preference was the law, at the advice of Reverend Dr. Finley, who educated me in Maryland, I took up medicine and was apprenticed by the popular and reputable Dr. Redmond of Philadelphia. I then studied medicine for two years, followed by a summer in Paris. I received a doctor of medicine from Edinburgh. Within a year, I became a well-respected and famous physician, one of the most well-known in all the colonies. I treated many patients for no charge. When Thomas Paine arrived from England, he had a letter of recommendation from the eminent Benjamin Franklin, 
which most fortunately came to my attention. Payne was all but on his deathbed when he arrived, and I had moved him off the ship on a stretcher and brought him to my home, where I nursed him back to health. I soon discerned why Franklin had recommended him. Payne had an unrealized, remarkable talent with the pen, and I urged him to write a pamphlet about the need to declare independence from the king. I even gave him the working title, Common Sense. The world was never the same. Of all of my accomplishments, this small one may have been my most important. I had written many tracts myself on behalf of the American cause. Pennsylvania offered me a seat in the Second Continental Congress in 1775, but I turned it down. Then a serious crisis happened. The Pennsylvania delegation in 1776 was split on the matter of independence, and I was persuaded to replace one of the delegates who opposed it. I was elected to Congress just after the resolution of independence and the declaration were approved, and was most pleased to sign it on August 2nd, with a mixed sense of dread and awe. I understood we were all signing our own death warrants. I assisted our troops as a general surgeon in 1777. I was absolutely appalled by the conditions in which we were forced to operate. My superior, Dr. William Shippen, was doing our brave men a true disservice. I was obliged by my conscience to write a letter documenting my concerns. Eventually, Congress found for Shippen, and I resigned my position in disgust. I did not return to public office for several years, focusing instead on myriad other interests and needs. However, I served in the Pennsylvania Convention that ratified the federal constitution. When the dreaded yellow fever swamped Philadelphia in 1793, I stayed, treating dozens upon dozens of people each day. This particular fever was particularly virulent, and many, many died. Almost all the physicians of the city fled. A few lingered, and I gathered them together. After acknowledging this terrible plague, I cajoled the remaining few that their presence in the city was indispensable. I implored a few of my pupils and colleagues to stay as follows. As for myself, I am determined to remain. I may fall victim to the epidemic, and so may you, gentlemen, but I prefer, since I am placed here by divine providence, to fall in. Performing my duty, if such must be the consequence of staying upon the ground, than to secure my life by fleeing from the post of duty allotted in the providence of God. I will remain, if I remain alone. Thankfully, a small troop remained, and we saved countless persons. Unfortunately, I was brokenhearted that a few of my students succumbed to the fever. Veritably, I did not come down with a small bout of the disease, but with a terrible bout of the disease myself but survived the malady. My medical practice was not simply confined to the physical arts. I wrote medical inquiries and observations upon diseases of the mind, the first textbook of mental illness. I am now recognized as the father of American psychiatry. Students from across the country would attend my lectures on medicine. I held three different professorships, one at the Medical College of Philadelphia in chemistry, one in medicine at the same college, and one at the Institutes of Medicine and Chemical Science in the Medical College of Pennsylvania. Over the years, I had about 50 private students and taught approximately 2,000 students in all over the years. 
I opened the Philadelphia Dispensary, the first free medical clinic in America. Now, I followed the well-known medical practices of the time, including bloodletting and using mercury. However, I was criticized for this and even had a file a libel suit against a writer in a newspaper who accused me of killing more men than I saved. Eventually, I prevailed in the lawsuit. However, after the legendary George Washington expired in 1799, after one of my disciples used these techniques to try to save him, my medical reputation sunk. Still, that same year, President Adams appointed me treasurer of the U.S. Mint, and I held that post until my death. You might ask, what was Adams thinking appointing a doctor as the treasurer of the U.S. Mint? Well, you see, I was a bit of a Renaissance man. I dabbled in chemistry and philosophy. I supported temperance, prison reform, and took copious notes on my generation's leading lights. I co-founded Dickerson College at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I was the vice president of the Philadelphia Bible Society and a vice president of the American Philosophical Society. And in full alignment with your modern sentiments, I was an adamant abolitionist. Slavery was a mockery of heaven. I am proud that I served as the president of the American Society for the Abolition of Slavery. On the personal front, well, maybe more of a leadership front, I worked to mend the broken relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Once great allies, they fell into a wicked political feud during the election of 1796 and afterwards. Adams was basically my best friend, and Jefferson a close second. My efforts helped lead to a wonderful reconciliation of two of America's greatest men. Two of America's greatest men ever. I was so pleased to help heal those wounds. Even more remarkable, I acted to bring these two men together after I had an amazing, I would say a religious vision in a dream, in which both men had put aside old wounds, picked up a long and wonderful correspondence, and died nearly at the same time. I do believe this was divine intervention, because this is exactly what happened. Verily, I profoundly believed in the Bible and the saving grace of Scripture, the divine inspiration of the sacred writings, and used it as a guide in all I did. My lovely wife Julie and I had a lovely, lucky 13 children. Two particularly distinguished themselves, Richard was a diplomat, and John a wonderful physician. Of the signers, I gave Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin a run for their money in connection with my energy and diverse projects. True, on occasion, my energy would lead to impulsive and indiscreet remarks, For example, George Washington was particularly upset about my criticism of his original leadership with the military. But I was hardly alone. Some believe that we should be prudent. But seriously, time is short. Life is a gift. Prudence? That is a rascally virtue. My cord of life was cut by typhus. Fittingly, I ascended to the vault of heaven on the anniversary of the shot heard round the world, April 19th, 1813. All I asked people to say of me was he aimed well. I did my best to aim well. With great pleasure, I introduce the most revered Benjamin Franklin. I'm most obliged. Indeed, I am Benjamin Franklin. Like Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Adams, I'm a household name, even in your time. In fact, I was a household name well before the young Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Adams were out of their cribs.
or close to it. Many, many books have been written about me, it is true. I have written an autobiography, which had some modest acclaim, and I am a bit verbose, but so were many of my contemporaries. Most had very favorable views of me and my life, while Mr. Lossing, an historical expert upon which your judge warned, has relied upon quite a bit for these presentations of us signers of the Declaration, wrote as follows, quote, Probably a greater man than Benjamin Franklin never lived, regarded with that analytical discrimination, which distinguishes between true greatness and inherent qualities, rather than in brilliant external displays, and in almost every particular characteristic of a man, he presented a model of excellence of the highest regard. Unquote. Well, with the summary that I just received, I am inclined to... What is the peculiar phrase that you use? So peculiar. Oh, yes. Drop the mic. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just... I could not possibly pass up this opportunity to come back from Nirvana and spend a few more minutes entertaining such a convivial crowd. After all, I don't want to spoil the party. I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. I understand that the Beatles references just annoy the hell out of you, Mike Gerard. But as we have established, I am a jester after all. It is quite peculiar the shade of red Mike Gerard has just turned. Oh, this is delightful. I do so much enjoy that the Beatles are the background music in heaven. Mike Gerard will truly enjoy that. That's, of course, if he gets here. Well, enough fun on Mike Gerard's account. I must begin at the beginning. I was spawned in Boston on the 17th day of January, 1706. Quite a brisk day. If you paid close attention, you will no doubt note that I am several decades older than most of my fellow delegates in Congress, and the oldest by far. My blessed father was a Puritan, and as such he abandoned his corrupt home of England and came to this wondrous new world. His first wife, and he had a small brood of seven children. After she passed away, he married my mother, Miss Folger, and they had nine children. I was the anti-pen ultimate, that is to say, the third youngest child. Under my father's supervision, I was originally trained to become a soap builder and Tylo Chandler. Don't trouble yourself with what that exactly means. Just take comfort that it was a modest occupation, full of manual labor. I attended a common school for a few years and then worked for my father. It was less than agreeable with my talents and intuition. So then I wanted to be a cutler. But I could not afford the fee to become officially admitted into that most noble profession. So I became an apprentice to my older half-brother, James, as a printer in Boston. That is a kind way of saying I became his indentured servant. I was pledged to him until I was 21. Now, 
printing was something I had an aptitude for, and I gained great knowledge by reading what was being printed and liberally borrowing literature. Unfortunately, my brother could fly into violence, and I was not left unharmed. Quite frankly, he was cruel and tyrannical. As a teenager on August 7, 1721, I began publishing my own newspaper, The New England Courant. This was quite the novelty. It had humor and literary content unseen on the continent before. To save money for books, believe it or not, I became a vegetarian. Now, in addition to my voracious reading habits, I love to write. And in 1722, I penned 14 essays under the pen name, Mrs. Silence Do Good. I poked all sorts of fun at fashion and politics and merchants and higher education. My identity was hidden from my brother because I knew he wouldn't publish the essays otherwise. And since he didn't know the true author, he did actually publish them. In fact, they were very, very popular. My brother had a rebellious streak and accused local officials of colluding with pirates. For these accusations, he was jailed, and I was left to run the printing business alone. After he was released, my paper attacked ministers and local officials, and they ordered that my brother print nothing unless government officials approved it first. This prior restraint struck at the heart of our unalienable rights of free press and speech, and James refused to comply. So he went into hiding to evade this tyranny, and I was once again alone printing the paper. On September 25th of 1723, I broke loose from a different type of tyranny that imposed by my very own half-brother James, and I traveled to New Jersey and then Philadelphia. Philadelphia was quite a metropolis for its time, still is. I was but 17 years old, alone with a single dollar as company. But soon, one of my printing houses that I found in that fine city hired me. At this point, my fame and influence grew, and soon I became a character of the first order on the Pennsylvania stage. See, in 1732, I published for the first time Poor Richard's Almanac. It was an instant success, distributed widely in the colonies, England, and even continental Europe, in which it was translated into several languages. It was published every year until about 1757. The almanac was written for the common man, inexpensive and full of wonderful advice on a number of topics, much like your Google. No, let's poor Richard Almanac that was not a phrase we used, but we should have. Some of the maxims you still use today were made popular by the almanac. A penny saved is a penny earned. And early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing. Yes, all still very true. Every colonial home had two books. The Bible... And poor Richard's almanac. I am exaggerating just a bit. I'm not sure that they actually all had Bibles. Around the same time I began publishing the almanac, I gave birth to a new newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, which in very short order became the most 
popular newspaper in all the colonies. I also put myself into intense study and learned Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. One of my favorite objects was a literary club called the Junto Society, where we discussed great literature and the topics of the day with leading figures in Pennsylvania. We collected so many books that the collection became the core of what is now your Philadelphia library. But I was no mere printer and collector of great works. I also was a prolific writer, as I mentioned earlier, authoring many essays and pamphlets, which were widely consumed by an adoring public. In 1743, no, 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 in 1734, I became the official printer of the colonial government in Pennsylvania, and in 1736, I began my first official foray into public service as the clerk of the Pennsylvania General Assembly. That very next year, I became the postmaster of the colony. Like Dr. Rush and Thomas Jefferson, I was a Renaissance man. In addition to publishing writing, the Junto Society and Public Service, I spread my wings among many interests. I organized the first fire department in North America. I conjured the means to pave the streets and light the city with gas. I helped train the militia, which had been sorely neglected, and helped nurture the Pennsylvania Hospital and the academy that became the first University of Pennsylvania. I established the first circulating library in America and the American Philosophical Society for the Promotion of Useful Knowledge. I even published a treatise on improving chimneys. Now, you might laugh at that one, but it was deadly serious. Many people died of asphyxiation from poor chimney design and construction. I also invented the Franklin Stove, which again saved lives while heating homes. I did not bother to patent that small miracle. I published the General Magazine and History Chronicle for the British Plantations, which was a hit in the colonies. I invented the lightning rod. You heard one of my co-signers lost much of his family in a lightning strike. No lightning rod to save them. So very sad. And bifocals. My invention. In 1744, I was elected to serve in the General Assembly, Pennsylvania, and I served for 10 years. Before this, I served as an alderman for Philadelphia and as a justice of the peace. In 1753, I served on a peace commission with American Indians. In 1754, America's first political cartoon was drawn by my hand. The French were pressuring our western frontier, and I wanted the colonies to unite against them. I drew a snake cleverly cut it into pieces with each piece representing one of the colonies with the heading join or die little did i know how prophetic that little sketch would be later that year i served at a convention of colonial representatives that met in albany new york to address the general defense and security against our french enemies on july 2nd which you know happens to be the same date of the approval of our resolution of independence, we voted to approve a plan of union. At Albany, I proposed a specific plan, which was adopted by the convention in Albany on July 10th. Despite its many exemplary attributes, the plan of union was rejected out of hand by the colonial legislatures and the empire. The plan of union foreshadowed the current federal constitution. I was only two and a half decades ahead of my times. 
In a completely unrelated set of experiments, I electrified the world. All puns intended when I used a kite and key to conduct electricity during a lightning storm, proving my theory about lightning and electricity, and of course leading to the lightning rod. I published my findings in the electrifying work. <laughs> Experiments and observations made in Philadelphia. That flash in the pan, or rather kite and key, was in 1752. I then served as deputy postmaster general and helped with military preparations. In 1757, the governor and the Pennsylvania General Assembly had reached an impasse regarding some policy issues, and the assembly appointed me as its counsel to address the dispute in London, where naturally our position prevailed. I then took up residence in London as the colonial agent in England for five years. When I returned, the General Assembly not only gave me a public thanks, but a monetary award of $5,000. That was real, real money back then. I returned to England as a colonial agent in 1764, and when the Stamp Act passed the next year, I condemned it with might and vigor. As each success of British oppression and violation of our unalienable rights occurred, I worked energetically to represent the position of the colonies and no doubt helped ameliorate some British oppression and slow down the need to strive for independence. In fact, I stood before Parliament in 1766 to explain the American position against the Stamp Act. In 1773, I wrote, if I must say so myself, a brilliant pamphlet entitled Rules by Which a Great Empire May Be Reduced to a Small One, which was a tongue-in-cheek attack on the stupidity of British policies oppressing America. It was published on the first day of Patriot Week, September 11. In January the next year, 1774, when I was publishing attacks on the Empire's position on new offenses, I was brought before the Empire's Privy Council and was subjected to an in-person rant and dressing down by the Empire's Solicitor General and other high British officials and stripped of my postmaster job. I was called a coward, a thief, and a murderer. Like Jesus, I stood silent. Obviously, all of my efforts could not satiate British rapacity. In 1775, I returned home and was immediately elected to the Second Continental Congress. Soon an old friend, who was a member of Parliament, voted in favor of the English and against our interest. I raged about the betrayal and wrote the following. You are a member of Parliament and one of that majority which has doomed our country to destruction. You have begun to burn our towns and murder our people. Look upon your hands. They are stained with the blood of your relations. You and I were long friends. You are now my enemy. And I am yours, B. Franklin. But I didn't bother to mail it. Instead, I put it to better use. I publicized it at home. My rectitude and attitude reflected my simple personal motto. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Thomas Jefferson borrowed it. Was it mine originally? Well, you'll have to ask me in our eternal home. I was appointed to the Committee of Five that drafted the Declaration of Independence. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson determined that Jefferson should take the lead in drafting the document. I was thrilled by the draft and made a few but important suggestions that Jefferson readily accepted. One of these is exceptionally important. Jefferson had penned, We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Nice, but as you say, what's, what's the... Fr uh, no cigar. I made it sing with we hold these truths to be self-evident. Of course, 
I voted for the resolution of independence and played a key role to ensuring that my delegation did so too. You see, I and James Wilson always planned to vote yay. Charles Humphreys and Thomas Willing were unequivocal nays. Robert Morris and John Dickinson abstained. So it fell to the vote of John Morton. He likely would have voted nay, but I worked him over with my, well, charm, and the rest is history. I also, of course, voted for the Declaration itself and signed it on August 2nd. As you no doubt know by now, after all you've heard from him last time, all of our signatures are dwarfed by our president, John Hancock's John Hancock. But if you pay a bit of attention to my signature, you will see a bit of flourish underneath my signature as well. Some say that among the signers of the Declaration, Congress had two geniuses, Thomas Jefferson and myself. I am most flattered, but I must confess that, as you have heard, there are many men of the first rank among us. In September 1776, I was one of three peace commissioners to meet with General Lord Howe to discuss peace. But it was an impossible task. It was too late. The British offered only slavery under a velvet glove. Soon, Pennsylvania convened a convention to draft a new form of government. Now that we were a free and independent state, and I was appointed president of the proceeding. Congress appointed me a commissioner to France to negotiate a treaty of alliance. I arrived a hero of the new world. I soon became a famous celebrity in France, a true sensation. I definitely played off the expectations of the French. I wore a beaver hat and simple clothes, a shocking anti-cultural elite statement in Paris, and was swooned over by the ladies and gentlemen of the most sophisticated and pretentious nation in the world. My picture appeared on lids of snuff boxes, rings, and busts. Quite amusingly, my portrait sold everywhere in France. I was, how do you call it, a diva. Women, especially older women of nobility, fawned and flirted with me at all hours of the day. I gained a reputation as a ladies' man, but really I was just playing a part. You see, well before I left for France, my common-law wife, Deborah Reed, passed away in 1774 when I was in England. Some think we were entirely faithful for 44 years. Others are not so sure. My son, William, was illegitimate, but some say my beloved Deborah was her mother. In any event, since she had joined her maker, I was free to chase entertaining pursuits in France. Despite my charm and fame, it was not until the Battle of Saratoga that America had the credibility to forge the crucial alliance with the French Empire. What is the old saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what the French thought. They were seeking sweet revenge for their losses in the French and Indian War. During the Revolutionary War, I donated my salary as American Postmaster General and also 3,000 pounds. After George Washington had secured our military victory at Yorktown, I played a key and indispensable part of negotiating the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War and recognized America as free and independent of the British Empire. How sweet it was to sign the treaty on September 3rd, 1783, with my own hand. See, ten years earlier, the English Council insulted me in America when I argued for American rights. I declared right there that I would not wear my suit again until I signed England its degradation and America's independence. Of course I wore the suit. When I signed the Treaty of Paris... Ah, 
Sweet indeed. I was unique in one other regard. I was the only person to sign the Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Paris, and then later the Constitution. That was enough to forge my unique place in history. But not all was a bunch of roses, or more accurately, every rose has its thorns. Unfortunately, my illegitimate but beloved son was a Tory. He was governor of New Jersey, was imprisoned by Congress in January 1776, and eventually fled to England, where he died. My only lovely daughter, thankfully, sided with America. Finally, I was relieved of my duties in France in 1785, when young Mr. Jefferson arrived as my successor. When I returned home, I was given a hero's welcome. I was very old, yet elected president of Pennsylvania for three years. In 1787, I attended the Federal Constitutional Convention. Though I only contributed a bit to the debates, like George Washington, my very presence gave it the credibility it needed to succeed. In my last few days, I wrote my autobiography. In a quick letter to a friend on November 13th of 1789, I coined the phrase, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I also decided to come out forcefully against slavery. True, I had held a few slaves in my younger years and even printed ads for the sale of slaves in my newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. But I also published many pamphlets by the Quakers condemning slavery. Over time, I decided that it was a despicable practice and wrote so in my private correspondence. In 1787, I took office as the president of the Pennsylvania Society for promoting the abolition of slavery. Not only did we stand for emancipation, but for integration. In 1789, I published several works opposing that dreaded institution, and afterward, I sent the Society's petition to Congress advocating for emancipation and the end of the slave trade. This was signed on February 3rd, 1790. Recognizing divine providence and based on the first principles of a free and just government, the petition specifically asked Congress to promote mercy and justice towards this distressed race. The House of Representatives determined that the issue of slavery was reserved to the states under the Constitution, and the Senate simply ignored it. What fools! We have paid for it ever since. This was the last public service I would perform. On April 17, 1790, Abraham's bosom welcomed me from a life well lived. From my perch, I could see my enormous funeral procession and the mourning that occurred across the Western world. In fact, Congress directed a 30-day mourning period and the Revolutionary National Assembly in France before it became entirely unhinged the key figure, Gabriel Bukiti Maribot, exclaimed, Franklin is dead! This shocked the otherwise raucous assembly into profound silence and distress. He then spontaneously launched into this most gratifying commentary an ocean away. The genius which gave freedom to America and scattered torrents of light upon Europe is retreated to the bosom of divinity, the sage whose two worlds claim the man disputed by the history of the sciences and the history of empires holds most undoubtedly an elevated rank among the human species. Political cabinets have too long notified the death of those who were never great but in their funeral orations. The etiquette of courts have too long sanctioned hypocritical grief. Nations ought only to mourn for their benefactors. The representatives of the freemen ought never to recommend any other than the heroes of humanity to their homage 
Antiquity would have elevated altars to that mortal who, for the advantage of the human race embracing both heaven and earth in his vast extensive mind, knew how to subdue thunder and tyranny. Enlightened and free Europe, at least, over its remembrances and its regrets to one of the greatest men who ever send the cause of philosophy and liberty. And the French Assembly united in ordering a resolution to wear mourning clothes for three days. Yes, Benjamin Franklin definitely earned those two mic drops. Some key takeaways from this episode. 56 delegates to Congress eventually signed the Declaration beginning on August 2nd, 1776. Among those delegates were Charles Carroll of Carrollton, George Wythe, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Nelson Jr., Francis Lightfoot Lee, Carter Braxton, Robert Morris, Benjamin Rush, and Benjamin Franklin. To fulfill the first principles of free and just government and achieve independence, the signers of the Declaration of Independence mutually pledged to each other and the new nation their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. As we learned from this episode, some of these signers risked their lives in battle, exhausted themselves, and had their fortunes ravaged, but they maintained their sacred honor. And we are the heirs of that pledge. Live up to it. Please join us for our next general episode when we continue our review of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is the sound designer of our show and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, proud father, dungeon master, and a fabulous bartender. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, patriots, and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.